Well, I mentioned this at our Grace 360 conference a few uh, couple months ago, but uh, my son, my four-year-old son right now, is really in a big superhero phase. Uh, he wants to be Batman or Spider-Man or Superman, not just the big name guys, but also guys like Aquaman and Green Lantern and all of the ones you don't hear about as much. Wow, there's some real superhero fans and uh, enemies over here hissing and all that kind of So, okay. So he is really into them. And uh, he even wears the costumes uh, the other day, in fact, to the store. He wore uh, a flash, the flash kind of helmet and cape to the store, you know, so we were there and uh, he was just going around the store. It's the only time in your life uh, that you can wear a costume like that to the store and people look at you like you're kind of normal, right? And so uh, he loves superheroes and so he'll read these little superhero books aimed toward kids his age and they all have basically the same storyline. If you've ever watched one of the superhero movies, Superman, Spider-Man, or whatever, they all have the same basic storyline. So you begin in a world or a city where everything is essentially okay. They're under the protection of the hero and uh, the enemies tremble at his very name. Uh, But then, shortly into the story, a new villain enters. And he either has, you know, a nuclear bomb or a deadly toxin, or an army of mutant ninjas, or something along those lines. He is going to destroy the world. And what happens is then the superhero has to test his abilities and rise up to the challenge and train even harder. And the rest of the movie is the story of that hero defeating the enemy. And at the end of the movie, you come full circle. Conflict is resolved. The world is stable again. Maybe they give you a hint of a conflict for the sequel that's going to come the next summer. But that's the storyline of all of them. Stability, villain enters, chaos, uncertainty, death, salvation, stability. So we're in the car the other day, and my son said to me, Daddy, Jesus is a superhero. And I thought at first, okay, that's an interesting concept. Certainly he's more than that, but he's right. In fact, I think Marvel and DC just ripped off the Bible because their storyline is the same. If you think about how we have walked through the book of Genesis this year, what you see is you begin with a beautiful garden that God creates, and he put his people there to worship him, to serve him, to obey him, and to reflect his character. He put them in a perfect place to tend to the garden that he had made. And so Genesis 1 and 2, you have this stable, wonderful world. Genesis 3, the villain enters, and it's Satan in the form of a serpent, and he lies to the man and the woman, and he says, God can't be trusted. And so they eat of that fruit, and death enters the world, and sin enters the world, and chaos and uncertainty, and the world itself breaks down. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God reaching in and undoing that brokenness, saving his people, saving his earth from the consequences of sin and death. So that when we get to the book of Revelation, all of it reaches its culmination. And there are battles and wars between God and the enemy, and eventually Jesus wins. And he sets up again a perfect world where there's no sin, there's no death, there's no tears or chaos forever and ever and ever. Only it's better than the garden because there's no possibility of sin or death. 
And what we're going to do this morning as we close out the Genesis series is we're really going to look primarily at these two bookends, Genesis 1 through 3, and then Revelation chapters 20 to 22. And we're going to see how Genesis finds its fulfillment in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. Everything in between is this story of God setting things right. So we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation this morning. I hope you're ready. I hope you got your Bibles. We're going to cover a lot of ground. And in the final analysis, here's what we're going to come to is that this is unbelievably good news. That the good news of the gospel is that God's superhero, Jesus, died and rose again. And in his resurrection is a promise of eternal life for those who believe in him. Life in a resurrected body on a perfected earth that goes on and on and on. And that is the good news that we've been entrusted with and the good news then that we're called to share with others. That that day of Jesus' return does not have to be a day of judgment and destruction and fear, but for those who trust in Jesus can be a day of life. And all of us know men and women who need that message. And so we've been entrusted with it and called to proclaim it, to share it with the world. So we're going to look this morning at how does God accomplish his plan for the fulfillment of all of his promises, the defeat of all of his enemies. What we're going to see is uh, that when Jesus returns, he will defeat all of God's enemies and he will fulfill every one of God's promises. So let's look at how he does that. First thing we're going to see is this, that Jesus will raise the dead. Jesus will raise the dead. When he returns, those who have trusted in Jesus will rise from the dead and have new life. Now, this isn't just a metaphor. This isn't some sort of allegory, and it's not some sort of spiritual, bodiless resurrection. This is a literal, bodily resurrection from the dead. It's interesting, over uh, Easter, right around Easter, I had posted a couple of things about the resurrection of Christ on my Facebook wall. And I had a friend send me messages and then emails, and his argument was essentially that it doesn't really matter if the bones of Jesus are still in the tomb because we have this spiritual image of the spiritual resurrection of Jesus and the spiritual resurrection of his people. And I said, wrong. It matters immensely. If the bones of Jesus are still in his tomb, then let's turn off the lights and go home. Because death is an enemy. Genesis chapter 3, it was part of the curse. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. When Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit, God placed them under a curse. Your body will now decay and go back to dust. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul says that the last enemy to be abolished is death. And so what we await is resurrection. You have never been to a funeral where you have rejoiced at death. At least I hope not. Funerals are a place where we grieve. Now, we may celebrate the person's life and the things they did in life and how they showed us how to live as a reflection of God, but we don't celebrate their death. Death is a separation. It's a separation of your body from your spirit. It's a separation of the person from God and the curse, that's what it was, is you don't get to live on this earth, in this land, because you will go to dust. And as Christians, what we wait is not primarily a spiritual resurrection, but instead the final day when Jesus will return and those who trust in him will rise from the dead. 
bodily and spiritually. Our spirits and bodies will reunite and will be with him forever. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Paul says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That is our hope, that one day Jesus will return, and that's what we refer to often as the rapture, that those who have trusted in Jesus will rise from the dead and be with him forever and ever. Uh, Earlier this week, I got the news that one of my seminary professors had passed away. His name was Dwight Pentecost, J. Dwight Pentecost. He was a a well-known for this book, among others. It's written in 1958, Things to Come. I took this off of Blake's shelf this morning so that I could show you all a copy. I knew he would have one. Uh, 600 pages about the end times, right? If you want to know about eschatology, I'll just hit you with it, right? And then you can know. All right, it is huge, but the fundamental premise of this book is that Jesus is coming back. And as I read the book, it's interesting, I was reading the book when I heard about his death. And it's very interesting. He, he was 99 years old, by the way, when he died. I took his class when he was 85, and I thought, I better take this now because I don't know how much longer he'll be teaching. <laughs> he taught till he was 98, and he passed away this past week. And it's interesting when somebody is that old and they eventually pass away, I have to confess it was a little bit of a shock because you kind of think maybe they'll just keep going, right? You're kind of rooting for them. (laughs) Maybe this will be the one. They will win. Death will not win. They will win. They'll beat it. And then when they die, you go, not yet. And we long for resurrection. Now, the reason I bring that up is because as I was looking over the book, I ran across this quote this week. It will be readily observed that the doctrine of resurrection is a cardinal doctrine of the Word of God. In the ministry of the apostles after Christ's resurrection, the theme of the resurrection of Christ dominated their preaching, almost to the exclusion of his death. Isn't that interesting? We sing primarily about his death. The apostles primarily talked about he's alive. And because he's alive, we will be too. Those who trust in Jesus have a sure promise that will rise. And so Jesus will come back and raise the dead. John chapter 11, famous story of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. If you remember, right before that happened, Jesus told Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know, I know, he'll rise again in the last day, you know, down the line. And Jesus says this to her, John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The idea is this, that if you have attached yourself to Jesus, the resurrection and the life, if you have trusted in him, then even if you die, you can't really die because you will not be separated forever from God. And so then Jesus looks over at that tomb and he says, Lazarus, come on out. And he gets up and he walks out. Jesus didn't just do that for the benefit of Mary and Martha to comfort them. He did that for us. And the implication 
is that one day Jesus will come back and he'll go, everybody who believes in me, come on out, come up, and we'll get up. And when he returns in Revelation chapter 20, he actually will take death and he, he destroys it. He kills it. Revelation 20 verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. He grabs death, the last great enemy, as Paul calls it, and he tosses it into the lake of fire, and it's done. And there is no more death for those who trust in Jesus. We will be united with God forever and ever and ever. And so as we look at Genesis 3 and we look at the end of Revelation, what we see is in Genesis 3, death enters, and death is pervasive throughout the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve died. Cain kills Abel. Rebekah dies in childbirth. Joseph dies in Egypt, far away from home. And he says, I want you to take my bones. He tells his brothers, I want you to take my bones, bury my bones in the promised land. It seems like a strange request, but Hebrews says it's a request of faith that he's looking for a city because he knows God has promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob a land. And that God will fulfill his promises one day. And so they take Joseph's bones. And you see in Exodus, as they leave Egypt, it says Moses takes Joseph's bones in a box and he carries them and buries them in the promised land. And guess what? Joseph will one day rise on that land and live forever with Jesus in the land that was promised. And that leads into the next thing that we'll see is Jesus will raise the dead. He will also restore creation. He's going to restore creation back to the way it was supposed to be and better. Think about Genesis chapter 2. What was life like for Adam and Eve in the garden? What was life like for Adam and Eve in the garden? They had a perfect land, right? They had trees that produced fruit, and they apparently didn't have to work that hard to cultivate it. And they had abundant food. There was no food shortage. There were no water shortages. They had everything they needed. God provided it. They had perfect work. They were there to cultivate the land and they had perfect work. So they never got to the end of their work day and went, I hate this job. If you've ever had a job, you've had those days, right? You get to the end, you go, I want to do something else, but I don't know what else to do. So I guess I'll go back to that one again tomorrow. They never had that day. They got to the end of each day and they said, what a fulfilling task we have to reign as God's representatives on this earth, to take care of this garden. And they had perfect work. They had perfect relationships with one another and with God. Uh, Genesis makes a point of saying the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. There were no secrets. There was no shame. There was no conflict between them until after the fall. They used to walk with God in the cool of the garden in his presence, and he was with them. So they had perfect relationships. There was no curse, no death, no sin, no hurt. And as you get to the end of the Bible, you see that God restores things to the way they're supposed to be. But right now they're broken. Genesis 3, after the fall, the world itself breaks. So now there are weeds. And God says, you're going to work and you're going to sweat and you're going to toil to get food out of the ground. And now you're going to say, I hate this job. There will be natural disasters. And there will be devastation on the earth. This past week, my six-year-old daughter, after we had been outside, said, Daddy, why did God make mosquitoes if all they do is suck our blood? 
And I thought about it, and I really had no good answer to that. Now, it may be that you're like an entomologist and you have a good answer. Don't tell me about it because I relish my hatred for mosquitoes. I don't want to let it go. Okay? <laughs> I couldn't think of a good reason. And in fact, uh, Bill Gates actually on his blog just this past week came out and said mosquitoes are the deadliest animal on the planet. Through disease transmission, they kill more than 700,000 people every year. So why did God make mosquitoes? I really, I don't know. Uh, Maybe they were nice in the garden. Maybe they did blood transfusions or something like that, right? And they were helpful. (laughs) But now they're not. And And you go to your garden and there are weeds and things are breaking down because creation itself is broken. Romans chapter 8 says this, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so the day is coming when Jesus will restore what was once lost, that the world will again be a place of innocence, again be a place of life, again be a place where plants grow as they should, where animals don't hurt other animals and animals don't hurt people. And the world will be like it was supposed to be, only better. Look at some of the parallels between Genesis chapter 1 and Revelation 21 and 22. In Genesis 1, of course, we have creation of the world. Revelation 21 and 22, you have a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. In Genesis 1, you have the tree of life in chapter 2. In Revelation 21 to 22, the tree of life makes a reappearance. Except this time, it's interesting, it's not one tree of life. It's tons of them lining the river of life. And they always bear fruit in their season. Twelve kinds of fruit. One kind of fruit for every year. You have the January life fruit and the February life fruit and the March life fruit and you just keep eating them all year long. Twelve different kinds of fruit and infinite trees. It's even better than the garden. Genesis chapter 1, you have two great lights that God makes. The sun and the moon. Revelation 21 and 22, there isn't a sun or a moon. Because God himself is the light. In Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, we have man and wife, right? Revelation 21 and 22, we are the bride of the Lamb. Why? Because the closeness that we have with God removes the need for marriage as a picture of our closeness with God. And so we are the bride of the Lamb. Genesis chapter 1, you have God in the garden. Revelation 21 and 22, he's back with us in the city. We see his presence. Genesis chapter 1, you have the curse. Revelation 21 and 22, there is no curse. If you have a Bible, look for a moment at Revelation chapter 21. Allow this just to absorb into your heart and mind for a moment. Revelation 21 verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. Chapter 22, starting in verse 1. 
Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no longer any night They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. It's hard for me to read that without a tear springing to my eyes because I read that and I think that's how it should be. You think about your favorite vacation spot, your idea of utopia, and you sit there and you enjoy God's creation and you think, what a wonderful creation God has made, but... There's still mosquitoes, right? There's still danger. There's still death. And one day we have this, we will have this pure enjoyment of all God has made without the danger, death, and sin. Life as it was meant to be. And so as you go from Genesis to Revelation, what you see is that the study of end times is primarily the study of how does God take what was broken and fix it again? And so all of creation is moving in the direction of this restoration. It's important to notice that what you have in Revelation 21 is heaven comes here. Notice that? The final hope is not that we go there without a body, but instead that our bodies come back to life and heaven comes here and there are real rivers and real trees and real people. And Isaiah says that the wolf will lie with the lamb. There are real animals. The child will play by the cobra's nest and not get harmed. I doubt many of you are going to let your kids go play in a cobra nest this afternoon, are you? But you won't have to worry about it. Imagine that. Because the world will be as it was supposed to be when God made it. And even better, because there's no possibility of death or sin re-entering. That is the restored creation. That is the promise for when Jesus returns. Now, he does that through the means, ultimately, of fulfilling all of his promises to his people. Jesus will fulfill all of God's promises. Now, to get this, we need to go back again to Genesis. If you remember, after Genesis chapter 3, things get worse and worse and worse. We have more violence, more hatred. We have murder on the earth. You have, ultimately, this guy, Lamech, who says, if Cain killed one guy, I'll kill a lot of guys. And then we get to the Tower of Babel where mankind says, I'm going to build a tower up to the heavens and we'll consolidate and we won't spread out and fulfill God's plan to multiply across the earth, but we'll consolidate, we'll build this tower and we will reach the sky and be as powerful as God. And it says God from up in heaven looked down and goes, oh look, they're building a little tower. Right? And he confuses their language and spreads them across the earth. And then he begins this plan of restoration with one man and his family. So he calls Abraham out of idolatry. He says, Abraham, to you, I promise a land, I promise descendants, and I promise that through your descendants, all of the nations will be blessed. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. 
and I will make you a great nation that is I'll multiply your descendants. He says that explicitly in Genesis 15. I'll make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And he says, I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so the idea is that through this one man and his descendants, all of the world would experience the blessing of God. And so as you walk through the history of Israel, you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, and they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And God calls them out of Egypt and he leads them toward the promised land. And he gives them this law that reveals who he is and what he wants them to be, but they cannot obey it. And over and over and over again, they fail to obey the law. And so they're kicked off the land and they get to come back to the land, but they still do not have hearts that want to obey God's law. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, there's despair, but there's hope because God had also promised through David that a king would come who would reign on God's behalf and set everything right in the nation. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. And so the superhero enters when you get to the New Testament and begins the process of making everything right. And the only way he can do it is by dying in our place to take our sin, our death, on his infinite self. And then he rose again. Defeated death, defeated sin, and brings new life through the Spirit and ultimately life on the earth. That is the story of God fulfilling his promises. And as you walk through the study of end times, what you see is that there were certain promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants. For example, that they would have this land, and the boundaries are even defined as you walk through Genesis 15, 17, 22. There's certain boundaries that are even reiterated in the prophets in Jeremiah 31. And as you get toward the end, what you see is they have never fully occupied that land. Even today, they don't fully occupy the land that God promised. And so the time is coming and Jeremiah promises it that the time is coming when God will restore them and give them the fullness of that land. And the nation of Israel, Zechariah says, will even turn toward him whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him and they will worship Jesus again. And so when we talk about eschatology in times, when we talk about in times, it is this study of how God will fulfill all of those promises to the nation of Israel and then through them bless the world so we can participate. And so as you look through the scripture, I'm going to give you just a couple of thoughts. Genesis chapter 3, therefore be sure that it is those who have, are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. You see what he's saying? He's saying that those who know Jesus participate in that promise, that Jesus now is the seed to whom all of the blessings have been given, and Jesus now hands those blessings out to people who believe in him so that we can participate in all of these promises to be on the land and experience that life to be one of Abraham's descendants and then to be able to move from there and be a blessing and be blessed because of what Jesus has done for the whole human race. And so God fulfills all of his promises. Think about whoever you voted for in the last election, the last two, three, four elections if you voted. You probably voted for a politician to hold some office, a president, governor, mayor, whatever it may be. Now, let me ask you this. Did that person keep his promises? Some, maybe. Did he keep all? I doubt it. 
I've never known of one who did. Maybe he kept one half of one promise, part of a couple of promises, right? Our leaders don't often, but you know what? Neither do we. How many of us have made promises to our children, to our spouses, to our roommates? I'll clean the dishes tomorrow night. And there they sit a week later. I'll take you for ice cream later today, kids. Mm, I need a nap, right? (laughs) Sometimes we break our promises because we lack integrity. Sometimes we break our promises because we lack ability. God lacks neither. Jesus isn't running for office. He is the king. And when he makes promises, he has the ability and the integrity to carry them out, and he will. He made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, and he will carry them out. And as you walk through the Bible, this is what that plan looks like in brief. We are in this period of time called the church age after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but before the rapture that we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4, where all of those who died in Christ will rise and be with him forever. And then as you look at Daniel 9, as you look at the book of Revelation, it seems that there's this period of time called the tribulation period where the nation of Israel is chastened and brought to know their Savior. And so that's why Zechariah says they will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as you mourn for an only son. Romans 11, Paul says that all Israel will come to a place where they will trust in Christ, that there will be a generation of Israelites who will return to him. And then Jesus returns and he sets up this kingdom. A thousand years, that's Revelation 20, 1 through 6. A thousand years where his people reign with him. On the land, it says, in Jerusalem, Jesus reigns as king. And then Revelation 21 to 22, he establishes an eternal kingdom. The city of God comes to earth. And we live with him forever and ever and ever. God will fulfill his promises to Israel and to us. That's the type of God that we have. And so we begin in Genesis with a perfect garden, and then we experience the fall because the villain enters and deceives us. We end in a perfect city with a river running through the city, with the tree of life lining the river, And there will come this moment where we'll say, Jesus has defeated every enemy and fulfilled every promise. Satan has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Sin is no more. Eschatology is not primarily about fancy charts or left behind or Kirk Cameron or whatever it may be, right? Although all of those things may be involved in some way. Eschatology is primarily about this, that Jesus will win that the greatest superhero will conclude the story in a better way even than it began, right? At the end of Revelation, there's no setup for a sequel, right? There's not going to be the Bible 2 where we got to go through all this again, okay? (laughs) It's over. The story has been written. It has been completed. His promises have been fulfilled, and we live with God in perfect relationship, in a perfect world forever and ever and ever. I hope that sounds like good news because it is the best news that God has to offer us and it is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It may be that you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus for eternal life. 
the message this morning is this, that all who trust in him will have life. All who do not will face judgment and pain on that day. And so God doesn't want you to perish, but is offering, offering, offering the free gift of eternal life every day. For those who know him, the message is go out into the world and proclaim the good news. The good news is that Jesus is alive and coming back. Who in your life needs to hear that good news? That Jesus has defeated sin and death and he's coming back soon. Because our hope is not in some world system or politician. Our hope is not that simply one day we will die and go to heaven, although if we believe in Jesus, that's true. But our hope is ultimately that he will restore all things, raise the dead, make creation what it was supposed to be, and fulfill God's promises. And we have that promise because he's alive, because we celebrated Easter. We know, we know that he's coming back. And we've been entrusted, as Paul says, with the ability with the message of reconciliation to go out into the world and proclaim that message to the world. He's coming back. He'll defeat every enemy. He'll fulfill every promise. Let's go out in the world and share that truth. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for this time. I pray that you would give us courage and wisdom as we interact with one another, as well as with the world and those who have not yet met you through Jesus. I pray we would be bold and truthful and kind and merciful in the way we proclaim the truth about Jesus. Father, we are thankful that we have this good news, that your Son is alive. We look forward to the day when death is thrown into the lake of fire and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire to be judged away from your presence, unable to hurt, to harm, to deceive. But we look forward even more to that day when you restore everything anew and we have life forever. Not just breathing, but peace, security, closeness to you forever and ever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.